Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have made yourself known to us by your spirit, through your word, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And is our desire, Father, that in this hour you would help us to know more of your goodness, more of our need for you, and more of how to point others to you. And so we pray that by your spirit, as our great counselor, you would edify us this morning for the good of your church. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, as you can see, the title for this session is Preventing and Purging Sexual Sin. And so sexuality is one of God's many uh, good gifts that God gives to man and woman, which is to be celebrated in the context of marriage. And to make sure, yes, we're up there. Um, And yet, like all of God's good gifts, uh, mankind has the propensity to take what is good and to make an idol out of it. What is good can easily be distorted, can be twisted, um, and can offend even the giver of that gift. And so the the title for today, uh, the topic for today, sexual sin, is one of those things that honestly I would rather not have to, to address but unfortunately is one of those things that we need to address because it is rampant in not only uh, America today but throughout the world. It's one of those common temptations which far too often uh, takes hold of the heart and even overwhelms the heart's of many. And this is not a new thing. We see this throughout the scriptures. We have King David as a prime example of somebody who in his idleness was overtaken by sexual sin. And we'll come back to to him in a little bit. But perhaps the most common indulgence in sexual sin today uh, is that of pornography. Uh, Last December, Josh McDowell said this, I would personally say from all my knowledge now, that pornography is probably the greatest threat to the cause of Christ in the history of the world. And as I started to think about that, there's certainly at least some truth in that. As you think about sexual sin and how that has destroyed, devastated so many homes, so many churches, and enslaves and brings about so much evil around the globe. There is certainly something to that statement. And statistics show that pornography and other forms of sexual sin are a growing epidemic. And therefore, the focus of this time is to learn how to guard against one sexual sin in our own hearts, but also how to help others with this struggle. And so my aim for this session is that you would be uh, better prepared uh, to engage in an ongoing battle. Uh, to prepare to engage in an ongoing battle. And so why prepare for an ongoing battle? Well, the short of it is this. Anything that God declares good will be assaulted in this world. Anything that God declares to be good will be assaulted in this world. First John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so while certainly God is sovereign over the evil one and the the evil that he does, at the same time, uh, there's certainly much evil that is taking place through the schemes of the evil one. And so from the very beginning, Satan set out to do what? To deceive, to distort that which God created to be good. Adam and Eve were given everything in the garden to enjoy except one tree, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And so the serpent came and he presented the forbidden fruit as something that was desirable, that would ultimately prove to be deadly for all of humanity. And so Adam and Eve fell for Satan's scheme. And one author wrote this, the devil has no shortage of tools for destroying lives. And in today's culture, one of the most effective tools is a distorted view of sexuality. The wreckage of such a view is everywhere. A marriage is broken by infidelity. A child is abused by a relative. A pastor is forced from his ministry due to a pornography addiction. A college student thinks back on her one-night stand with deep regret and a wounded heart. Such scenes are all too common. 
perhaps no other human desire has been so distorted by our culture as sex. To borrow an illustration from C.S. Lewis, sexual desire has become like a piano key that is played at all the wrong times. Though God designed it for beautiful melodies, it has instead soured the music. I think that's a good observation. And so there is nothing new as we consider sexual sin. In fact, sexual sin is seen throughout the Bible. And so here's a definition as we consider sexual sin within the Bible. A sexual sin is a selfish, idolatrous desire to gratify self by engaging in thoughts, words, or actions of a sexual nature that God has forbidden. Okay, and as we consider the various sexual sins throughout the Bible, there are many. This is not a comprehensive list, but this is a list of the sexual sins we see in the Bible. And I was somewhat shocked, even in our, our first five years in the little counseling ministry we have in little Glen Rose, Texas, that we encountered every single one of these, with the exception of prostitution, which we have now encountered through our extended ministry in Guatemala. And so these are an example of the sexual sins that we see throughout history, including in our day today: adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, immorality or fornication, incest, mental immorality such as pornography, masturbation, prostitution, rape, and sexual child abuse. And so the question becomes, why so much immorality? And God's Word speaks to this. In fact, one of the key texts that we need to consider is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, where we have here what Pastor Stephen Yule, he heard this morning, preached on this. He called this the dreadful exchange, where people suppress the truth of who God is, what God's called us to be and to be about, and they exchange what is natural for what is Unnatural, putting themselves on this slippery slope. And so a great exposition there. I encourage you to listen to that at a later time. Romans 1, 18 uh, through 29, a dreadful exchange. Uh, and so what is the, ex- the result of this dreadful exchange? Uh, just looking briefly at Proverbs chapter 5, and this was outlined uh, here previously back in 2011. Uh, Proverbs 5, an honest evaluation of sexual sins cost. Okay, Proverbs obviously is wisdom literature, right? And it's wisdom we need to hear and take to heart. And so we see in Proverbs chapter 5, first verse, and ignoring God's loving counsel, which then results in foolishness. Uh, We see also then indulging in sexual sin will scar your reputation. It lacks discretion that then leads to foolish behaviors. Uh, We see in verses 3 and 4, to summarize that, just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good, right? So the adulterous woman with her lips dripping with honey. It may sound good, but it doesn't mean that it is good. Next, in verses 5 and 6, we see sexual sin is destructive. Her feet go down to death. And next, in verses 7 through 8, the calling of wisdom is to stay as far away from sexual sin as possible, Verses 9 through 10, sexual sin will drain life from your life. It doesn't give you more life. It drains life from the life that you have. And concluding verses 11 through 14, sexual sin ultimately produces regret. And the proverb says there, it brings the person to the brink of utter ruin. Okay? And so this is, is the wisdom that we have to stay away from sexual sin. Uh, in the next weekend, you get the, the good side of this. You get to look at, at God's design for, for physical intimacy and how that's a good gift and how we can pursue that gift in the way that God intended. But the session today is dealing with the opposite side when God's good gift has been distorted and perverted. And so sexual sin certainly remains uh, rampant today. Just one illustration, and I could give way too many, but several years ago, 
I had a, a mom come to me, and she was seeking to be faithful to the Lord with her teenage son, who I think was 13 or 14 at the time, uh, seeking to protect him from the worldliness of the world. And, and there's one afternoon where he had over a friend from another church, a, a Christian friend that she trusted, and she told him she had to step out for a moment to do a chore, and she did, and she forgot something. And she came back into her kitchen where this trusted Christian friend had pulled out his smartphone and was exposing her son to pornography right there in her own home. And so this is just one example, and we need to not be naive thinking this is what happens elsewhere. Uh, It has infiltrated our culture. It is all around us, and it is very easily brought into our homes today through other people or even through uh, the media things that are in our house. And so we need to be prepared to deal with this. And so how do we... Do that. Uh, first, as we consider this, um, so sexual sin remains rampant today. Um, we need to prepare to engage in ongoing battle as we permeate our minds with truth. Permeate your mind with truth. And so certainly, uh, truth is under assault in our day. And so what is truth? What is truth as it relates to this struggle? We need to believe, we must believe that sexual sin is an abuse of God's good gift of sex. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no need for shame. Why? Because God brought them together and he called it good. Sexuality is good in the context of marriage as God designed it. And yet again, the temptation can be there to love the gift more than the giver of the gift. To begin to live for the gift rather than live for the one who has given the gift and know his blessings as we use a gift as, as he intended. And so it's a gift that if not used to honor him, never satisfies and ultimately leads, as Proverbs says, to the brink of utter ruin. And thus we must believe, we must believe that sexual sin is unacceptable. Right? Not because I say so, but this is because what God has said. This is what His Word says. So a couple passages uh, that may be important to walk through somebody you're helping who is struggling with sexual sin. First Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And it's interesting to note, what does He put right after Sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, So part of our sanctification, being set apart under Christ, becoming like Christ, is we abstain from sexual immorality. Hebrews 13.4, well, this is a verse that's not popular in our culture today. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and Adulterous. Right? God has called these things unacceptable. These are not things that those who follow Christ should participate in or be a part of. And so in the eyes of God, there is no justifying sexual sin. And thus, we must believe that sexual sin can be prevented and purged by the power of Christ and His cross. And this is a truth. Knowing this truth brings hope to those who are struggling with sexual sin. A verse you guys are probably very familiar with, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And certainly sexual sin is one that is way too common to man. But God is faithful. Even in the midst of perhaps their unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so, in a relationship with Christ, knowing the power of the gospel, the believer is able to prevent and to purge sexual sin in their lives. It no longer has to be president over them, as Brian Hedges said. Though it may be resident within them, it is something that by the grace of God they're able to purge and to mortify in their lives. And so a good question to ask those struggling with sin uh, might be this. How does the gospel enable you to change? Someone struggling with sexual sin, the answer that we give to them, the counsel we give them, isn't just stop it, don't do that, do this instead, right? 
They need to understand who Christ is, what he has done, the promises and provisions that he has given in the midst of this struggle. And so this is a a question that we want to unpack in all of our counseling scenarios, but also involving sexual sin. So we'll come back to this a little bit as we go. So in dealing with sexual sin, we need to encourage them, one, to purge the heart of all forms of enslaving sin. Right? So what does it mean to purge the heart of enslaving sin? To purge means to cleanse, to purify, to eradicate, to mortify. Okay? This is the language that Paul gives there in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore. It doesn't say put in the closet to be pulled out later when nobody else is around. It says put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, the top of the list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Several years ago, I lived on just right outside the outskirts of Glen Rose, and we had six acres there in kind of a a wooded area, and at least half of that property was converted into a paintball course. We had youth in my home, we had uh, youth in the neighborhood, and it became kind of a, an outreach discipleship opportunity. And so one of the, the things that I did with every game we played, I, I put in a biblical truth to that. And one of those, we had a big wooden playground that we converted into a fort, and we created this game based off of Colossians 3, 5, called To the Death. It's a kid you, you know, game you want your kids to come play, right? To the Death. And, and what that was all about is the fort represented the heart. And there was a few people assigned to the fort, and their goal was to hold that fort. Everybody else worked as a team to mortify those within the fort, representing the heart. And so it was their aim, regardless the cost, to clean out the fort. Okay? That ultimately is what God has called us to do with the sin in our hearts, these things that want to remain there and maybe are fortified there in a sense, put to death, therefore what is earthly within you. And so as the intentionality of those attacking the fort, we're trying to take it, likewise with much more significance, when sin has taken hold in the heart, we need to put it to death. So put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly within you. John Flavel, the Puritan writer, said this, To purify behavior, you must cleanse the fountain from which it flows. So important. We're not dealing ultimately with the behavior, though that's important. We need to deal as biblical counselors with the heart from which that behavior is coming from. And so what then are some of the common idols of the heart that serve as a catalyst for those that are struggling with sexual sin? Idols, of course, are anything we love more than God, anything that we might serve that we think will bring us satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, or a solution to our problems. And so at its core, sexual sin reveals a worship problem, right? Sexual sin reveals a worship problem. And when one engages in sexual sin, they are worshiping, again, the creation rather than the creator, And so some common idols as we work with those struggling with sexual sins that that we need to help them identify uh, might be these. What are the idols going on in the heart? Perhaps security. Perhaps they think engaging in a sexual uh, sin uh, somehow will bring them a greater security in their relationship with somebody else. And so they're willing to violate God's word, God's design, in order to try to secure up that relationship somehow. Others might be seeking acceptance, appreciation, companionship, affection, comfort, Respect, control, pleasure, or even relief. And so to get at the root of the sin, this is a good question to ask as we seek to understand what's being desired, what's being sought after from the heart level in regards to their sexual sin. A good question to ask is this. What is it that you are most wanting when tempted to sin? And for those especially who are enslaved to sexual sin, you're going to find there's a pattern. There are certain things they're wanting or not wanting that oftentimes then open the door, make the temptation stronger for them to engage in whatever form of sexual sin that it is. 
And so as we consider that, the temptation there, John Owen wrote this, He that would indeed get the conquest over any sin must consider his temptations to it and strike at that root. Without deliverance from thence, he will not be healed. So so important as, as we work with that, as we help them identify those things that they're after in regards to that sin. And so we need then to, number four, pursue God's prescribed battle plan for preventing and purging sexual sin. Practically, how do we help others with this common temptation? What does that involve? At the top of the list, I believe, is to prize the gospel daily. To prize the gospel daily. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, or constrains us. Okay? Note what it doesn't say. For the lust of the flesh controls us. Alright? That's what happens when pornography or whatever sexual sin is being engaged of. The opposite of the lust of the flesh is the love of of Christ. We need to get to the gospel with them. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Why? That those who live may no longer live for themselves. What is sexual sin? Living for oneself. It is entirely selfish. That they may no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You take him to the gospel. Who is Christ? What has he done? Who are you living for? What has he done for you that you should want to live for him? How has he enabled you to to put off, put to death this sin that is within? And so Maurice Roberts rightly concluded this. He said, The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of a Savior's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. Right? And so if Christ does not have our affections, it will be pursued someplace else. So above all else, the heart needs to be filled with the knowledge and the love of Christ. And so how can we help others prize the gospel in this way? Well, we, we know the means of grace, right? Um, yeah, one is to memorize and meditate upon gospel-centered verses. Uh, John Piper wrote, As sin lures the body into sinful action, we call to mind a Christ-revealing word of Scripture and slay the temptation with the superior worth and beauty of Christ over what sin offers. Okay, so an example of this, um, you remember the, the story was Odysseus and Jason in regards to the, the Sirenes, uh, those enchanted figures that put forth this beautiful music on that island and when the ships would go by, they would put forth their beautiful music and, and they'd be drawn in and dashed to pieces upon the rocks and killed. Right? And so I think it was Odysseus first who, who had the idea, in order to get by it, when we go by, all those on the ship were to plug their ears with wax. He was tied to the, to the mast and he told his crew, when we go by, regardless of what I tell you, do not let me down. Because he knew he would be drawn in, would tell the ship to go that way and they would be killed. And so he went by and was able to hear the music without being allowed to go in. Okay, There was a guardrail there. But there's a better way to fight sin. I think it was Jason then, when he came by, Cyrene's music was beautiful, but with him was a musician whose music was superior. And it was better than the Cyrene's. It was pure, it was good. And they heard that music, and therefore the enticement to go to the to Cyrene's was overcome. Likewise with us. When the love of Christ fills our heart, it is far superior than what the world has to offer. And ultimately, the world will destroy you. 
But in Christ, there are no regrets and there are blessings. And so we want the gospel to saturate us, that these temptations no longer have that power to, to draw us. We need to look to Christ and the power that He offers and the superior pleasure that we find in Him. And so as we help people um, with the gospel and in understanding that, we want to give them perhaps um, certainly texts that are rich in the gospel, but also I've found, uh, especially for newer believers, uh, Michael or Milton Vincent's book called A Gospel Primer. And it's basically 31 days of rehearsing the gospel to yourselves, considering the gospel from different angles and the implications upon our life. We, we tend to view, I grew up hearing that the gospel is for your, your salvation, meaning justification. And that is true. But that's just the beginning of the salvation process. The gospel is also for your ongoing sanctification. We don't just get Christ and then we're good. We need Christ in order to continue to be good and become more like Him. And so the gospel is ongoing. Implications of it are for every aspect of life. And so resources like that are excellent. We need to keep the gospel in view. Thus Jeremiah Burroughs wrote this. There we go. As flies will not come to honey if it is boiling hot, but when it is cold. So if the heart is boiling hot for Christ and the affections working, it will keep out vain thoughts and temptations. So true. So we can also then saturate our souls with Christ-centered music, gospel-saturated music in private and public worship. And so when we're perhaps alone or tempted to think on thoughts that we shouldn't, certainly we go to the Scriptures and we go to prayer, but sometimes we need somebody else. It's helpful to have somebody else sing those gospel truths over us, remind us of who God is, taking the Psalms and putting them to music, and we dwell on that and we're, we're reminded of that superior pleasure that we have in Christ and our identity in Him. And so as we do these things, we must also then, according to the Scriptures, provide no provision for the flesh. Provide no provision for the flesh. And so open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And this is an important text amongst many others that we probably want to open up with somebody who's struggling with whatever form of sexual sin. Uh, here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it means to be a true follower of him in comparison to the Pharisees, those that were religiously, um, outward, re- outwardly religious at least. And so he's telling them, this is what it looks like to, to follow me. This is, this is a standard that I have set in comparison to what you have heard. And so Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who does what? Looks at a woman with lustful intent. Oftentimes today that's pornography, but that can be anywhere, anytime. Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, so regarding this passage, uh, an excellent book that I've I've used frequently. We've done as men's Bible studies in our church. Um, Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free. Uh, He talks about this passage. He summarizes this passage in this way. One, there's here in verses 27 and 28 a serious standard. And then also there's a, a serious strategy. A serious strategy. My computer is not doing the same thing as the screen. There we go. A serious strategy. Uh, The strategy is to repent and to repent immediately. Don't limit opportunities. Eliminate them. Now, I think it's important to note Jesus here in saying, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. This is hyperbole, okay? Don't counsel your counselee to go home, take the ice pick and poke out your eye. Okay, that's, that's not what's being said here. In fact, I actually knew a guy whose father struggled with sexual sin and did that. 
Okay, that's not the kind of counsel and offer. This is hyperbole. Um, it's, it's saying you need to take extreme measures. There should be radical amputation. You need to cut off the source of those things. But he's not saying literally go do that. But you need to get rid of the supply, whatever it is. And so if it's pornography through a, a smartphone, it would be smart to get rid of that smartphone. Right? Maybe all together or at least get a dumb phone if you've got to have one. That would be a smart thing to do. Uh, if it's the internet, uh, perhaps if it's been an adulterous relationship, uh, you need to make sure that contact information is, is gone. It's, it's eliminated. Whatever you can do, get rid of uh, the source. And he also talks about a serious stake. And on this, Heath Lambert writes, There are two simple choices and two guaranteed consequences. The easy path of sexual morality, which will kill you, and the hard path of radical warfare against it, which will lead you to the fullness of life. And so here we see we need to take radical measures to make sure we're not able to participate in these things again. But is it enough just to focus on the, the outward behavioral things? Yeah, and Jesus here starts out by talking about if you've even looked at. So this is a heart measure. So we need to consider the heart. And so next we probe the motives of the heart. Uh, a great prayer to pray, whether it's pornography, sexual issues, whatever else, is Psalm 139, 23-24, where the psalmist cries out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way within me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And so we need to ask the Lord to probe our hearts in regards to the struggles with sin. And in pleading with God to search us and lead us in His ways, we need to also recognize why we sin in the first place. Okay, so that takes us then to James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Uh, and this is, a, again, another key passage. You may want to open with your counselees and help them understand. And so James 1, 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. What He wants at the heart level. And so temptations only exist because of the desires of the heart. And so think of this in terms of fishing. Right? What is the objective of fishing? To catch the fish. And how do you catch the fish? You entice it. Ultimately, you're seeking to deceive the stupid fish. Right? You want to make it look real. You hide the hook, perhaps. I don't know how much it matters with a fish. But you, you put the bait out to deceive the fish so you can catch it, reel it in to go to your grill, right? Uh, or if you're kind, you can release it. But Satan doesn't do catch and release, right? He would rather catch and destroy. And so you deceive the fish. Now, here's a crazy thing about it. Sexual sin... Often those engaging, they are very well, that, uh, very much uh, aware that there is a hook within the bait. And yet the insanity of sin is that they go for it anyways, repeatedly. Okay? That's the insanity of sin. Why do we sin when we're lured and enticed by our own desires? And so this then brings us back to the significance of conquering those sinful desires at the heart level, right? So James goes on to say that those desires, when they conceive, uh, they set us up for the consequences then of unchecked desires, which is sin and death. The consequences of unchecked desires, sin and death. James 1.15, therefore, goes on to say, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth or brings forth death. And so that's the famous statement John, by John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Okay? We have to put it to death. It's not something we, we put in the closet for later. And so all sin left unchecked 
leads the soul ultimately away from the highest superior satisfaction that it's found in Christ. So we need to check that sin for what it is. When the desire comes, go back to the gospel. Who is Christ? There's a superior satisfaction there, and he enables us, therefore, to overcome that sin. Now Mark Dutton summarizes James 1, 13 through 15 with this equation. He says, desire, meaning I want it, along with enticement, oh, I can get this, equals temptation. I need, I deserve it, plus will, I choose it, which then ultimately results in a sinful action. Where does the battle begin? Where should the battle begin on this equation? Right there at the very beginning, right? With the desire, right? If the desire is for the right things, the rest of those things aren't there. In fact, the temptation loses its temptation if we find something superior to that. I think it may have been Brent Osterberg years ago in talking about this, used the illustration. Uh, down the road here on 377, you have Hofbrau Steakhouse, right? And you go into Hofbrau Steakhouse and you get a big juicy steak and whatever you want is so good and you walk out fully satisfied and you look across and see Wendy's. How tempting does Wendy's sound at that point? Yeah, not at all, because you just had something better, right? And you're full and satisfied. Likewise, when we're full, we're satisfied with who Christ is. Then all these fleeting pleasures, these temptations that would seek to destroy us, lose their appeal because we are filled with something far superior. And so it starts at the desire level. We need to look to Christ and and be filled with Him, have our affections Upon him. And so we must plead with God daily to help us fight against sin at the level of desire. And so that leads us to the next one then to plead for mercy and forgiveness in confessing sin. And so somebody's fallen into this. Uh, we need to teach them to give themselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and repentance. Uh, Proverbs 28:13, key verse Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. All right, so important that sin is confessed ultimately to the Lord, but also in the case of sexual sin, so important that other people, appropriate other people, are allowed to come alongside to help them walk in purity in regards to those struggles. And so confession is the pathway to God's provision of mercy. Uh, James 4, 6, a familiar verse probably to most of us. God opposes the... but gives grace to the humble, right? And so we humble ourselves before God. We humble ourselves before appropriate others that can help us honor the Lord and learn to become pure in heart and therefore behavior. And so humility involves confessing sin. Using here an outline from Heath Lambert in his book, Finally Free, as to what biblical confession looks like. He says, it's important to confess your sin to all who have been directly affected by it. In other words, the, the, the circle of confession goes as far as those who have been directly impacted by the sin itself. Also, confession uh, should be with a willingness to accept the consequences. Okay, And so whatever that is, if it's a teenager through the use of a phone, the consequence may be that phone no longer needs to be used or... Um, there's protective measures or you trade in that smartphone for a really dumb phone, which is a smart thing, right? Uh, confess with a third party who can help with the response. Uh, this may be appropriate, for example, I'm thinking through a particular case where there was adultery and it was found out, church leadership was involved. It was a very good thing for the church leadership to go with that guilty party to the spouse that they had sinned against in confessing that. Uh, to one, help the other spouse, and also to keep things from escalating and perhaps being worse than what they could have been. And also, for the, the spouse that was sinned against, there's that sense of uh, maybe even hope at that point that, that at least my spouse is willing to, to get help, okay? And so involve a third party with a response um, when, when helpful, appropriate. Next, confess thoroughly, but not necessarily exhaustively, okay? And that's important because sometimes in the cases of sexual sin, especially adultery, the, the spouse who's been sinned against in that wants to know details, 
that just aren't going to be helpful because those are the thoughts they're going to have in their mind. They're going to continue to think about. And so it needs to be confessed thoroughly, but not specifically um, or entirely. We don't want to in any way glorify sin or put anything forth that would be unnecessary or actually harm the other person in their ability to maybe work towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Ephesians 5.12 says, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Okay, so there's a limit as to how much needs to be spoken. Again, that's a wisdom issue those counseling need to help uh, the parties out with. Next, we want to confess without making any excuses. Yeah, I did this, but I wouldn't have a few. Okay, that's not how we biblically confess. We take 100% ownership of our sin before the Lord as we confess to Him and one another. And also... Good part of confessing and, and written in that context, Psalm 51, David's sin against Bathsheba and the heartfelt prayer. And that is a good prayer for those who are in sexual sin that we should encourage them to study this prayer, to make that their own prayer and ask that the Lord would bless them accordingly in their confession and repentance. And so having confessed sin, we need to then also permeate your mind with Scripture. Right? Permeate the mind with Scripture. Psalm 119 9 through 11, a great passage to memorize. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. Okay? People sin against God for several reasons. One, they're not thinking on God for who he is, his word. And they're not pleading with God, do not let me stray from your commands. right? And so when we have the word of God treasured up, we have the sword then available for the battle. And when the temptation comes, which it will come. And so we're ready for battle. Have we internalized the word of God? Are we ready for the spiritual warfare? And so we must store up or meditate on God's word. Uh, meditation, this is something that's largely lost in our day of information overload. Right? We get a lot of information really quick and we retain very little of it uh, because it's just so much so quick and we don't soak in it. It doesn't saturate us. Um, but meditation of the scripture is so important. George Schwinnick says this, a serious applying meditation is a serious applying of the mind to some sacred subject till the affections be warmed and quickened and the resolution heightened and strengthened thereby against what is evil and for that which is good. We encourage our counselees to, to meditate upon what God says about their situation, who they are, who he is, and who Christ is. And then to meditate upon especially key passages that would help them uh, be ready to, uh, to fight the good fight. Also involved in that is prayer. They need to pray for transforming grace to replace sexual sin with godliness, gratitude, and servanthood. Okay, prayer, we'll hit on this again in a minute, so vital. So many people, especially in sexual sin, think, I can do this, or I won't do this again. And what are they relying upon? Ultimately, their own strength and self-will, right? But rather, through prayer, we're dependent upon the one who truly can help and can bring about true transformation of the heart. And so, uh, pray for transforming grace. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so in chapter 2, Finally Free, Heath Lambert provides a wonderful distinction here between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And as we're working with others, sexual sin, other sins, we need to help them understand what godly sorrow truly looks like and encourage them towards that. So Lambert writes, Worldly sorrow is a, uh, it, sorrow is sad over losing the things of this world. Right? I got caught, I can't have this anymore, at least not for a time period. While the focus of godly sorrow is God himself. Godly sorrow is heartbroken that God has been grieved and offended. Okay, so it's important that we, we help them understand the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And part of godly sorrow involves in replacing guilt with godliness. And so we need to help them, according to First Thess- or First Timothy 4.7, uh, train themselves for the purpose of 
godliness. They've been living in ungodliness probably in part because they weren't in a meaningful way engaging in the means of grace that God has given them for their spiritual growth and for protecting their heart with all vigilance. And so we want to make sure we get them grounded back into to the scriptures, into prayer, into those um, important things that are needed. And so we engage daily in the spiritual disciplines of Bible intake and prayer. Now, perhaps, again, going back to the scriptures, the vitality of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the scriptures, the relevancy of the scriptures and helping people sexual sin... Uh, as we seek to fight, if, let's say this is a sword, if I'm trying to hold this sword with one finger, how well is that going to go? Not good. How about two? Still probably going to fall. Three? A little more stable. Four? Maybe. Five? I've got it. We need to help people get the word. We do that through the means of grace. And so as you can see through the fingers here on the Bible, the sword, um, They need to be hearing, reading, studying, meditating, memorizing the Word of God. They need to be saturated with the Word so they can resist the temptations of the world, right? They need a firm grasp on who God is, who Christ is, what their struggle is, a biblical understanding of their motives and desires, and God's solution for Christ who is far superior and able to help them endure and to deliver them from those temptations. And so again, why would biblical counseling? It's because it's the only thing that ultimately works, right? You can change a behavior, behavioral modification, right? Um, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at our appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The Bible is like a mirror. It shows us, reflects back to us our hearts, right? Sharper than a double-edged sword, was it Hebrews 4.12? Discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so God uses His Word to show us our hearts, but also to show who He is in the midst of our struggles. And so spiritual disciplines are so important. And as we seek to grasp God's Word, we need to grasp it in humility, which is demonstrated through prayer. Right? And so Psalm 119, 36 through 37, a great verse to memorize and, and make a prayer for those who perhaps are struggling with sexual sin. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Again, what is sexual sin? Purely selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, pornography, and give me life in your ways. And so by grasping the word, they do so with prayer. Make that their plea before God. We want to also then help the counselee establish a daily plan for Bible intake and prayer as we help them replace greed with gratitude, right? Greed is, I want what I want when I want it the way that I want it. Uh, what God's called us to instead is gratitude for the good gifts he's given and to be used in, in his way. So Ephesians 5 3 and 4 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, God's people, as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Right, And so we see part of here of a strategy of putting off sexual sin, uh, those lusts of the flesh, that selfish greed, is gratitude. Okay, How can gratitude be an antidote to sexual sin? Okay, yeah, so in gratitude, we're thankful for who God is and what he's provided, right? In, in greed, we're focusing on what I want, um, and, and greed is all about me and my selfish desires, whereas gratitude reminds us of the truths of who God is. What do all of us deserve because of our sin? Hell, right? In gratitude, we should be grateful that God sent a substitute, that he sent his son to die upon the cross to take the condemnation that I deserve for my sin. And so gratitude, we should be grateful. I'm not getting ultimately what I deserve. Christ took that for me, right? But then also, what are the things that we have to be grateful for? 
And so sexual sin is all about selfishness. I want, I want, I want. The focus needs to be instead on what I've been given, what I've been given, what I've been given. And, and we ultimately deserve nothing good, but God in Christ gives us immeasurable blessings. And so as we focus on those blessings, then our hearts become warmed and thankful towards God, and therefore those enticements from sexual sin become less and less in their displace. All right? And so to help us think through that, uh, here's maybe some practical homework assignments that you might give to somebody. Make a list of 25 blessings God has given you and give thanks to them every day. Uh, make a list of five key areas of thought in which you need to grow in gratitude. And so perhaps in a marriage situation, maybe what are, are five things that you think about your spouse that, that you can be grateful for? And then think on those things. Maybe when you're tempted to lust towards somebody else or whatever else it is, think on what the Lord has given you and be grateful for that. Uh, another thing you could do is commit to give heartfelt thanks to at least three people each day. Okay, and so gratitude, thankfulness, displaces, sets our minds on what is good, um, rather than focusing on those selfish ambitions that come with sexual sin. So I also want to encourage them to serve others daily in the spirit rather than serve the self in the flesh. And so Galatians chapter 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, uh, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so sexual sin, again, is self-serving, and we want to do something then instead of self-serving to appropriately serve others instead. Sexual sin is self-focused. God has called us to be other-focused. There's joy in serving others the way that God has called us to do so. There's a, a superior pleasure, a superior satisfaction in doing God's will rather than rejecting His will and indulging in sexual sin. And so might be appropriate then, um, as far as homework, uh, to make a list of 20 ways that you could serve family and friends and do at least one of these daily. Okay, rather than serving yourself, thinking about yourself and your desires, what does God desire for you in regards to His people, in regards to others? How can you appropriately serve other people? Talk to church leadership and come up with three appropriate ways to, to serve the church. Okay, um, Get involved in meaningful ways. Now, obviously, if somebody's struggling with a sexual addiction, pornography, whatever it is, you're probably not going to have them serving in your children's ministry, right? And so there's some wisdom issues there, and you want to involve the appropriate others, church leadership, in that struggle, And but there are appropriate ways that a person could be serving in the context of a local church. So next, as we consider strategies to help those struggling with sexual sin, protect your heart diligently. And again, it comes back to the heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with... A little bit of vigilance. No. With all. Okay? Vitally important. Keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. An excellent book uh, that is certainly worth going through, really for all of us. I've done men's studies. My wife right now is doing this with some ladies, the ladies' studies. But an excellent book by John Flavel called Keeping the Heart. Uh, he writes this. He says, The stability of our souls in the hour of temptation will be much according to the care and conscientiousness we have in keeping our hearts. The careless heart is an easy prey to Satan in the hour of temptation. His main batteries are raised against that fortress, the heart. If he wins that, he wins all. For it commands the whole man. Alas, how easy a conquest is a neglected heart. Okay, such was the case with King David. So in short, to neglect keeping the heart with all vigilance means we're going to be living defeated in sin. John Flavel then goes on to write this. And this is so good. It is the watchful heart that discovers and suppresses the temptation before it comes to its strength. For it is with the motions of a tempted soul to sin as with the motion of a stone at first. But when it has started rolling, strength is gained thence. And therefore, it is the greatest wisdom in the world to observe the first motions of the heart and to check and stop sin 
there. Okay, so using this analogy, you have on your screen behind you, you've got this massive boulder on the top of a hill, and maybe there's a little trimmer, and it starts to roll. Are you going to run 100 yards downhill and brace yourself to catch it? Or would it be wise to catch it right there at the very beginning? Okay, and that's what we're called to do with the heart. Catch it right away. Be ready to fight sin. Be ready to do battle. It's so important that it starts at that desire level. The temptation hits. We need to, in that temptation, remember the gospel. Remember the truths of scripture. Remember that Christ is better. And so in protecting the heart, you might ask a question like this. Uh, what is your game plan for fighting the next temptation? Right? And those who especially for a period of time have struggled with, with sexual sin, um, when they're sitting across from you, Starbucks or in your office doing formal counseling, whatever it is, uh, they, they're kind of realizing, yeah, this is really stupid and I'm embarrassed and why would I ever do this again? But at 10 o'clock at night, they're at home, nobody else is there, and those same means, avenues are available and they're starting to desire something they shouldn't be. Uh, if they don't have a game plan, not keeping their heart with all vigilance, then what's probably going to happen? They're going to get rolled over again. And so, so important as we work with those struggling to come up with a biblical game plan. And so we do that in part by pursuing meaningful, say biblical, meaningful accountability. What might that look like? Establish accountability with mature believers. Okay, with mature believers, those who love Christ, those who know how to fight sin as God has prescribed. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful, and if we give into it time and time again, our hearts become hardened in the midst of it. And so the antidote to that then is God has given us the church to encourage us, to remind us of the deceitfulness of sin and the superior worth and beauty of Christ and and how to follow Him. And so God has called the church to be the primary context for preventing and purging sexual sin. And so in our game plan then, we want to have them invite the council, pastoral leadership, right? It's ultimately, think through Hebrews 13, 7, God has given the leaders, the pastors of the church to watch over the souls of those who are in that congregation. And so um, important that those who are struggling get good, solid accountability to help them with a very big issue. This isn't a light deal. This is a, a big deal that left unchecked will destroy. Okay, And we probably all know pastors or churches that have been destroyed or families that have been wrecked because of sexual sin. And so it needs to be taken seriously. We need to get those who can best help involved with those who may be struggling. And so invite pastoral leadership. Also read, discuss, and implement chapters 3 and 4 of Finally Free. And so I put that in there because chapters 3 and 4 deal well with, one, what are the first steps we need to take when we realize, okay, this is an issue. There's sexual sin involved. Uh, and really, it's a great book on sanctification in general. But what are the things that we need to, to, to look at? Um, and then also, as we think through that, um, uh, also it helps you develop a game plan to fight that sin. Okay? So a great resource there. And so questions to ask then, who specifically will you approach for ongoing biblical accountability? Okay? Again, whoever confesses his sins... Or whoever conceals the sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. And so it's very appropriate, very, uh, I would say even necessary for somebody enslaved to sexual sin to involve appropriate others. And we want to help them do that because they're struggling and you're out of town. Who are they going to call? Who are they going to meet up with? And so we involve appropriate others to come alongside them. All right, next, we help them prioritize their time with an eternal perspective. Our opening point was that we need to prepare to engage in an ongoing battle. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. That's certainly not sexual sin. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. 
And so the battle with sin ultimately isn't going to end until Christ returns, until we see him as he is. So until then, we need to know this will be an ongoing battle. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to guard our hearts with all vigilance. We need to put those measures in place. We need to continue to look to Christ who is far superior. And as we do so, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging, all the, uh, encouraging others all the more as the day, capital D, approaches. So sexual sin looks at the temporary, loses sight of the eternal. We want to help our people to look unto Christ who will return and to live for him until he does so. And so a final question, what are some specific ways you can live with an eternal perspective, right? If their mind is set on that, then it puts in perspective those fleeting temporal pleasures that might entice them and they can look back to Christ who one day will return. Several resources I put there for you to consider. A couple that I use frequently as I help others with sexual sin. Uh, Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free, almost always a go-to book for me. John Flavel, Keeping the Heart, excellent. Brian Hedges, License to Kill. That doesn't sound like a book you would hand out, but subtitle, A Filled Manual for the Mortification of Sin. Excellent book. We've taken our youth through it. It's appropriate for, for youth age. Very, very good. And Robert Jones if you're dealing with somebody, a marriage that uh, uh, has adultery involved, um, this is an excellent book for both the person who committed adultery and the sin, or the spouse that was sinned against. Very good for both of them to walk them through that. So those are some, some great resources. All right, let me pray for us, and then it'll be lunchtime. Father, we, uh, we come before you, and we are so grateful that you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And Father, uh, you have called us to walk in the light. And yet we acknowledge in this world we struggle with our thoughts and we walk alongside others who do so and some who have even been enslaved in sins such as sexual sin. And Father, we pray that you would grant us the wisdom of your word to come alongside them with the things that we've learned today and to love them. Uh, to call them to repentance and to remind them of the gospel and the implications for their lives. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us to recall the things that we've heard. And, Father, we pray now as we partake of the food that's been prepared that we would do so with hearts that are grateful for not only this food but your many good gifts that are given to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.